0: How do you feel about king cake? That bright cake smothered in sprinkles with a plastic baby stuffed inside. Maybe you're more a fan of the galette de roi, the puff pastry and franjapan version that hails from France. Or maybe you don't like king cake at all. You spend the day before Lent eating pancakes or punchki. Shrove Tuesday traditions abound all around the world. Today, we're going to learn how some of the most popular traditions came to be. Welcome to Kitchen Meditations, a weekly podcast from the Edible Theology Project where we examine the ways God meets us in the kitchen and at the table. I'm your host, Kendall Vanderslice. If you are hungry for a taste of God's hope and healing in the mundane tasks of your everyday life, then you have come to the right place. May these meditations bring you a bit of grounding as you prepare to eat today and every day. Let's get started with a little spiritual mise en place, a prayer to orient ourselves before we begin. In the professional kitchen, mise en place is the process of preparing your workspace for the dishes you're about to make. It involves measuring your ingredients and reading your recipe all the way through so that you can find delight, whether cooking for a fast for a feast. I like to think of it as a time to prepare my own mind and body as well, asking God to be present with me as I cook or as I bake. Our spiritual mise en place today is drawn from the Daily Office in the Book of Common Prayer. Slow your breathing, and now as you breathe, repeat with me. Inhale. We confess that we have sinned and as you exhale, in thought, word, and deed. I ate my first king cake in elementary school. A classmate from Louisiana brought it in to share. She told us about the baby hidden inside, which one lucky person would find in their slice. We all devoured our pieces, hoping we would get to be the king or queen for a day. But once a classmate found the trinket, he panicked. The story goes that whoever finds the baby has to provide the cake the following year. And he didn't know where he could buy one. Here in the United States, the Louisiana-style king cake is most often connected with Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, the day before the start of Lent. It's a day, or sometimes a few days, of parades and rich foods, of masks and beads and debauchery. But the Tuesday celebration is actually the culmination of a season that starts on January 6th, spanning from Epiphany all the way to Lent. In most places around the world, this season is called Carnival. Unlike the season of Lent, it is not likely that Carnival was practiced by early Christians. Most evidence suggests that the celebrations began in Europe around the 13th century with differing regional traditions shaped by late winter folk festivals of each place. To this day, it's celebrated all over the world in areas with a strong Christian presence, most notably Europe and South, Central, and Caribbean America. Some of the most famous celebrations take place in Rio de Janeiro and Venice. Carnival is a season of social upheaval or a ritual of reversal It's a time of turning social norms upside down. Like the Jewish season of Purim, and also like Halloween, it's a time for costumes and for consumption of rich treats. It is a season of socially sanctioned disorder, degrading higher functions like thought, speech, or the soul, and emphasizing the grotesqueness of the body. Perhaps you're thinking, why in the world would Christians celebrate a season of such grotesque excess? The answer is pretty fascinating, in fact. The season of Carnival begins with Epiphany, the day that marks the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. Three kings bow before a baby who was born in a manger, an infant born in poverty who they recognize as their true king. When King Herod learns that the Magi are going to worship the baby, he feels threatened. The Lord warns Mary and Joseph of King Herod's planned massacre and directs them to flee to Egypt. This story is one of social upheaval, a subversion of the expected order. It's a story of kings bowing to a child, of the most powerful earthly king afraid of being dethroned by a poor infant. Similarly, carnival festivities subvert the expectations and norms that keep the ruling class in power. Carnival especially took off in places where Christianity was spread under colonial rule, because it was a way for those who were colonized to reclaim agency and to mock those who had asserted control over them, without the rulers understanding what was actually taking place. Masks and shared foods provide the illusion of egalitarianism between the poor and the elite while in fact they create an opportunity for the poor to reveal the absurdity of the ones who claimed power over them. It's kind of like the emperor without his clothes. The festivities of carnival are a time of preparation for the celebration to come at Easter. They reveal the need for Christ's death and resurrection, which unseats the power of sin and death and allows for a fuller celebration of freedom. The festivals remind us what it is that we're waiting for while we fast, and they also remind us that true celebration is impossible without repentance. The foods of this season are directly tied to Lent as well. Not only do the rich foods fit with the season's celebration of excessive consumption, they serve as a means of preventing waste. All the foods popular in the pre-Lenten celebration are methods of using up the stores of butter, milk, and eggs that people would have on hand so they wouldn't go to waste during the fast. But this still doesn't answer that ever-present question. Where did the baby and the cake come from? The earliest version of a king cake-like treat is the Greek Vasilopita. Vasilopita is a sweet bread that is served on January 1st, the feast day of St. Basil, the 4th century Cappadocian father and bishop of Caesarea. The story goes that one year, during a time of famine, the emperor of Caesarea imposed an excessive tax that forced many families to give up their most precious coins and jewelry. Bishop Basil was horrified by this injustice and called the emperor to repent, and he did. Unsure how to return the proper jewelry to each family, Basil prayed, and the Lord told him to have the treasures baked into a giant pita, or pie. After praying over the pie, Basil cut a piece for each person in town who magically received their own belongings in their slice. In honor of this miracle, the vasilopita is made each year on St. Basil's Feast Day. It's an enriched bread made with a coin baked inside and an intricate design cut into the top. Like many carnival traditions, this one likely stemmed from an earlier folk celebration, but it has been linked to Greek Orthodoxy since the 9th century, when the St. Basil story began to make the rounds. The French galette de roi looks quite similar to the vasilopita. With its elaborate carvings in the crust. It's a puff pastry cake filled with an almond cream called frangipan, and it has a bean or an almond hidden inside. This version of king cake is thought to have emerged in the 13th century, when the tradition of carnival began. Southern France celebrates with a brioche-style cake, an enriched bread that gets adorned with candied fruits. This version is also quite similar to the Spanish Rosco de Reyes or the Portuguese Bolo Rei. The fruit is said to represent the jewels in a king's crown. And the trinket hidden inside honors the Holy Family's escape to Egypt, representing the need to hide Jesus from King Herod. It marks the absurdity of a king rightly frightened by a toddler. In 1699, a group of French-Canadian explorers settled into a plot of land 60 miles south of what is now New Orleans, arriving the night before Mardi Gras. The occasion was celebrated each year, with the festivities eventually growing into the New Orleans Mardi Gras we know today. The Louisiana-style king cake is another iteration of the Southern French, Spanish, or Portuguese cake, a sweet bread covered in icing and sprinkles. Instead of candied fruits, the green sprinkles represent faith, the gold, power, and the purple, justice. In the 1950s, a traveling salesman approached Donald Ettringer of McKenzie's Bakery in New Orleans. He had an excess of porcelain dolls from France and thought they'd be a great way to represent Jesus in the king cake. Ettringer agreed, but the people began to grow a little bit nervous about eating a cake with porcelain baked inside. So the dolls were soon replaced with plastic, which is how we arrived at the plastic baby Jesus my classmate found in his cake. In other parts of the world, the days leading up to Lent are celebrated with a wide range of treats designed to use up butter and eggs. The Slavic Orthodox Church celebrates Maslenitsa, or Butter and Cheese Week, by consuming copious amounts of blini, Russian pancakes. This grew out of a folk celebration of the turning from winter to spring, which was marked by sharing red buckwheat pancakes, a symbol of birth and of death. In Poland, punchki are served. They're a treat similar to a jelly donut. These pastries began as a rich, savory dough filled with animal fat. They were consumed by rich and poor alike, playing into the equalizing theme of carnival. The story goes that in the 18th century, King August III brought French cooks into court and encouraged them to improve upon the pastry. The French developed a more tender dough and began filling it with sweet jam instead of animal fat, using flavors like prune and rose. Punchki are popular in the parts of the United States with large Polish populations. In these areas, Shrove Tuesday has earned the name Punchki Day. The Scandinavian treat semlor is similarly a stuffed bread, but that's about where the similarities end. It's a sweet roll whose insides are scooped out and mixed together with cream and almond paste to form a custard. After getting spooned back into the roll, the dessert gets a hefty dollop of whipped cream and a sprinkling of powdered sugar. Sometimes semlor are served in a bowl, floating in hot milk. I can't say I've ever tried them this way, but I think I would prefer to consume mine alongside a mug of steaming coffee, avoiding the soggy-bottomed roll. Some lore are believed to have started out as a way to use up stale bread, soaking the loaf in milk to soften it back up. Over time, the bread was stuffed with additional treats like raisins and other dried fruits. Around the 16th century, the practice of scooping out the insides of the roll and mixing them up with cream, almonds, and sugar emerged. Swedish lore recounts the fateful day in 1771 that King Adolf Frederick ate 14 semlor soaked in milk alongside a dinner of lobster, caviar, and champagne. And then he died of indigestion. In response, the poet Johann Gabriel Oxensteiner wrote that Fat Tuesday should be prohibited and the Lenten bun expelled from Sweden as it had committed regicide. But to me, this story sounds like Carnival doing exactly what Carnival is meant to do. Exposing the grotesqueness of worldly excess so that we can properly celebrate the risen king. We confess that we have sinned. In thought, word, and deed. We'll get to our kitchen tip in just a moment. But I want to take a quick break to tell you more about Edible Theology. Edible Theology is an educational media project helping you connect the communion table to the kitchen table. We offer Bible studies, bread baking workshops, and a digital community to help you meet God through food. We just opened the doors to the baker's table, our membership community for folks who love baking as a way to connect with God. The community opens for new members just four times a year. So now is a great time to join. Over the season of Lent, we'll be learning how to make sourdough bread while probing the many stories of bread in scripture. You won't want to miss it. Join the baker's table today by following the link in the show notes. Our kitchen tip today is for those who want to take part in the Shrove Tuesday celebration, but don't quite know where to begin. If you live in an area where semlor, punchki, or king cake are available at this time of year, then you should most definitely consider purchasing your treat straight from the store. But if you've never seen any of these in the area where you live, then it's time to get creative in the kitchen. Consider choosing one of the items we mentioned in this episode today and look up a recipe that you can make at home. If baking is not your thing, then pancakes are always a safe way to go. Whatever you choose, try to go just a little bit over the top. Adorn your pancakes with whipped cream and chocolate chips, candied cherries, and a drizzle of caramel. It's okay if you've got a bit of a sugar hangover in the end. It's actually kind of the point. As you feast on the treats on Shrove Tuesday, reflect on all that they represent. They are just a taste of the celebration to come on the other side of Lent. They expose the limits of our present pleasure, reminding us that even our celebration today is stained by the brokenness of our bodies and of this world. But through this reminder, they prepare us to fast so that we can more fully appreciate Christ's redemption come Easter Sunday. And now to close, a prayer for Carnival. O God who came to earth as an infant, who overturned all expectation of what it looks like to be a king, expose the absurdity of worldly power today. As we feast on pancakes and punchki and senlor, as we divvy up the cake, may we remember the infant hidden between the folds of sweet dough, the child who threatened King Herod and turned the world upside down. Amen. Kitchen Meditations is brought to you by the Edible Theology Project, where the communion table meets the dinner table. Learn more and sign up for our weekly newsletter at edibletheology.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at edibletheologyproject. If you want to discuss this episode with other food-loving folks, then join our free community at community.edibletheology.com. We post discussion questions every Monday to keep the conversation going. Our intro music is by Josh Garrels. A huge thank you to my team, Hannah Hargrave, Sherea Calabras, Emily Thompson, Lisa Hammersham, and to our producer, Jason Rugg, who made this podcast possible. We would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or Spotify. Then share this episode with your friends. Your help ensures that others discover this podcast, too.